Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is professor in the Department of History at the University of Exeter. And uh, he is the author of over well, uh, over 100 books. Uh, no doubt he is uh, the most prolific author writing in the English language and perhaps indeed on the planet Earth. And today we are speaking about his book, The English Press, A History. Welcome, Professor Black. Good afternoon. Uh, Professor Black, uh, what is the thesis of the book? Well, the thesis of the book is an attempt to look at the rise and fall of the English press, or at least its development um, since the 17th century. I'd written before on the 18th century press, and I wanted to revisit that, but also obviously to bring the situation up to the present day, because the press is being affected very much by technological, social, and other changes at the moment. And, that, and it was interesting to look at those in the long term. And I have for many years taught uh, newspaper history as a course at Exeter, and therefore it was also interesting to try and frame some of the ideas one had developed for undergraduates into a sort of a briefer, because one doesn't have the uh, capacity of an annual course, but into a briefer book. And I, I found it very interesting. I mean, one of the great things about newspapers is the material is as interesting. I mean, often, often when you're writing historical works, the subject may be interesting, but the material you're reading in the archives or in printed sources is not necessarily so, so enthralling. I mean, with the newspaper, the real problem is concentrating on the fact that you actually are trying to prepare for a book as opposed to just following the columns down and reading what is going to come next. Uh, if you don't mind my asking, I noticed that the book, in terms of the endnotes and the bibliography at the back, um, did not contain uh, Stephen Coss's uh, book on the rise and fall of the political press in Britain, which uh, many, many, many years ago, when I was in graduate school, was regarded as being the last word on the subject. Why was that? Well, I mean, I've referred to that in one of my earlier books. The problem is I'm not just simply writing about the political press. And one of the actual, if, if, I, if you don't mind me saying so, one of the great problems in work on the press, not least because academics tend to be more interested in, as it were, the intellectual side, is they tend very much to focus on newspapers as political messages and medium. Well, those are important, but I mean, people read newspapers as much to see the price of grain or to read when the new railway timetables were coming in in the 19th century, or to see what fashions were, or to do crosswords, as they do for politics. And costs is good on the politics side, but you know that it doesn't really uh, address the wider issue. And it's the wider issue also, if you won't mind me saying so, which is much more important to the profitability of the press. Ultimately, if we're looking now at the decline of newspapers. What one is looking at is why they are not delivering the return on capital and why their readership is shrinking. I don't think that's got anything to do with the quality or otherwise of their political news. So I myself would not put politics to the front. And as you know, by background, I'm an 18th centuryist. In the 18th century, there were newspapers that had significant political coverage, the essay papers, things like the Craftsman, most famously, or the North Britain. But they actually were not, on the whole, the most successful newspapers. On the whole, the most successful newspapers were newspapers that carried in their title the phrase advertiser, sorry, the word advertiser, things like the daily advertiser, because those actually connected much more with the nature of the press as a key role in a commercializing society. Uh, when did the first English newspaper appear? 
Well, that's, again, a very interesting question. And as you'll notice from my book, one has the question of what precisely we mean from a newspaper as opposed to a newsletter um, or as a or, you know, if you might say a news book. I mean, I myself follow what I think is the generally conventional view that we're looking at the very end of the 16 teens, beginning of the 1620s, and more specifically with the interest in foreign news that follows the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War on the continent, which is in 1618, and the sort of spread of that war and the possibility that Britain is going to come into it. So I would say that is the key point. But some other people might argue that you, a newspaper ought to be a daily. And as you will know, um, we don't get dailies till the very beginning of the 18th century, usually seen as the daily courant in 1701. So it's partly a question of what you actually define as a newspaper. Does it have to be something that's daily? Uh, is it something that has to be printed? Because obviously before the printed press, and I was essentially talking to you um, about printed newspapers, and the first printed newspaper in Europe uh, is generally seen as the ones in Wuffenbüttel and, and in Strasbourg in 1609. Um, so, you know, London, which was followed with English language newspapers in Amsterdam in 1620 and London titles in 1621, that's quite quick. But obviously, as we know, there were prior to that um, manuscript, handwritten uh, news accounts produced generally for the correspondence of particular mercantile or political groups who wanted information. And of course, that was cheaper than setting it to print and more flexible. Um, so it's a question of what exactly you mean by a newspaper. I know that's a silly remark, but it's not intended to be silly. And then if you go forward into the 18th century, um, a lot of newspapers are weeklies, a lot of magazines are monthlies, and there are hybrid types between them. And it's not always clear how best to differentiate. I mean, we would see a magazine as a highly illustrated product. Um, that was not what people meant in the 18th century. If you picked up the Gentleman's Magazine or the London Magazine, which are the most famous, there were other magazines, of course, um, you are not seeing a, a modern, highly illustrated product at all. In fact, generally, there's a frontispiece, and that's it. No other illustrations, but they call it a magazine. And by a magazine, they they seem to have meant a monthly that was slightly more eclectic than a newspaper, but newspapers were pretty eclectic. And uh, I'm not sure that there was, in fact, a very, a very clear distinction. Can you explain to the audience what was the Licensing Act and uh, why was it allowed to lapse in 1694? And why was that lapsing important in terms of the evolution, future evolution of the British press or English press? Yes. Um, well, publication was a privilege. In other words, it wasn't an automatic right, and it was a privilege extended by the state and overse overseen by a process of regulation, which was based on what was known as the Licensing Act, which was a renewable uh, piece of legislation. And essentially, that was the situation under the Stuarts. And it's in 1695 that the Licensing Act uh, lapsed. Now, it wasn't some moment of great aspiration to newspaper liberty. It was felt that the existing system for the supervision of printing was just inadequate. And plans, in fact, were drawn up to prepare a new regulatory act, but they were killed because of a lack of uh, parliamentary time. And it they sort of moved towards feeling that instead of trying to suppress newspapers in that form, it was probably better to actually uh, impose a financial charge on them, a tax on them, and that that would be another means of controlling them. If I might just make a broader point, in essence, under a licensing act, you have a system of pre-publication censorship. Now, however it's applied, it might be that you only allow certain titles to be published, or it may well be that individual articles have to be scrutinized. In Britain, it was, it was, it was more the former. Um, we then move to the situation that you have in Britain or the United States at the present moment, which is post-publication censorship. You in the present moment um, in the United States or Britain, and I'm not saying this in some awful conspiratorial sense, but an item that is judged um, 
to be indefensible in law is in effect can be censored. In other words, the newspaper can be penalized for it. And um, if necessary, there can be instructions to destroy past copies. Um, and so we think post-publication censorship is perfectly OK. And we're, you know, we're concerned about issues of public decency, about um, uh, hatred towards uh, particular groups being should not be disseminated in the press, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, about notions of defamation and libel. All of those play a role in our understanding of appropriate censorship. Um, now, what one's got in the previous period is not some sort of, you know, diabolically bad system which has been replaced in some benign Whig order, but instead different understandings about the uh, appropriateness of material that to appear in print and then about how best to regulate it. So, in essence, uh, post-publication censorship uh, after 1694 became the... Um, uh, system that uh, for regulation of uh, any type of uh, print publication in the UK, that's correct. Yes, I mean, there were still restrictions. There were restrictions on the reporting of Parliament, for example. Um, but yes, I mean, essentially, there were particular issues which remained the case. Um, in fact, in some respects, remained the case. So um, there would always have been limitations on printing material judged treasonable. And that was an issue in the 18th century because of the Jacobites. Uh, there were issues about material judged blasphemous. And, of course, um, John Wilkes got into trouble um, on those grounds. But in essence, in essence, um, newspapers could appear and then they could take their luck with the courts. Um, uh, but it was very, very difficult to stop something in advance. And that made the England, later on the UK after 1707, uh, unique in Ancien Regime Europe, correct? Um, well, there were two other places that had a relatively free press. The United Provinces, we would call them the Dutch Republic, and Hamburg. And it's no accident, I think, that you're talking about Protestant mercantile societies here. Of those, the freest was uh, was Britain. And obviously what that linked to, you're, you're speaking from New York, what that linked to was the policy towards newspapers in, uh, you know, in the centers of um, life in the, in the colonies, as they then were. So you get uh, a freer press in New York or Boston or Kingston, Jamaica, than you were to see in the colonies of France or Spain. Um, so there were significant differences. And without, as it were, over-dramatizing this, I, I think it's important for the background of very different public cultures. I mean, as you know, at the present moment, we're all supposed to be um, people that say, you know, we're all supposed to be allegedly citizens of the world and think everything's the same and every culture is of equal value. But of course, that's rubbish. I mean, there are some cultures that are freer, that, ex that encourage um, the expression of diverse opinions, that understand that you cannot have systems of democratization in which, you know, the views of some at least, and hopefully of a lot, are of value unless you also encourage and accept diversity of opinion. Um, and you know, it is no accident that there are very major cultural differences between societies which have a disposition to authoritarianism and societies that have a disposition to, to democratization. And the press traditionally has been very important there. And that indeed is part of the background of the way in which the Americans formulated their constitution, uh, constitutional provisions in terms of freedom of expression. Well, I certainly agree with you there. Um, let me ask you, since you brought it up just now in terms of public culture, from your comments in the book, I'm assuming that you do not actually adhere to the Habermasian concept of public culture, particularly as it relates to the 18th century. Is that correct? It is correct. I wrote about that in my 18th century Europe. I'm afraid, I mean, the difficulty I've got is I write, as you correctly say, a lot of books. One has to be very careful when one's in that position not to repeat oneself. So if I've tackled something at length in one book, I tend to feel that I shouldn't tackle it in something else. One hopes that people can read between them. But yes, I mean, one of the, one of the sad aspects 
and I see this repeatedly in my subject, is you get clever people who repeat absolute nonsense. I don't understand why that is. I mean, as you know, I'm a military historian by background as well, and there's an enormous amount of rubbish repeated about military revolutions and this sort of stuff. And, and you know, they act as a sort of substitute of, of thought, or as Dennis Showalter pointed out, you know, they're the sort of last refuge of the Whig. Um, and the Habermasian account, I think, is rather silly. I mean, it presupposes that in order to have a kind of um, social progress, a kind of social equity and a development of knowledge, you have to move away from um, what you or I might have called an ancien regime society, and you have to have more a kind of sort of proto-Berkeley or a sort of proto-Paris, um, and that um, essentially there's an implicit bias in favour of a secularised account of an enlightenment and against sort of peasants and clergy and aristocrats, etc., etc. It's all ludicrous because it presupposes, A, that you're going to have these very clear, distinct groups. It underrates the ability of uh, conservative societies to actually change. Um, it exaggerates the degree, and I think this is a very common feature of uh, German writing on the enlightenment, exaggerates the degree of secular in it. Um, and it, you know, for example, ignores the extent to which much of the writing in the 18th century, including incidentally newspapers, if you look at my book on the English press in the 18th century, I go to town there on the extent to which some of the major newspapers, which tend to completely drop out, are dealing with religious topics. Um, and indeed, I would make the same point about the 19th century. I mean, you, you referred at the beginning to the discussion of politics in the 19th century. A lot of the discussion of politics in the 19th century relates to issues of religion and to, to issues to do with uh, the regulation of, of uh, ecclesiastical affairs and education and the linkage of that. And these are not marginal add-ons to some sort of public space that is inherently secularized and enlightened. These are, in fact... Uh, part and parcel of a key debate. And going back, I mean, I know you're interested in the broad nature of cultural development. I mean, going back, I mean, that surely is one of the issues we have in society today, that you've got this, the, this as it were, sort of uh, offering of a dichotomy between, on the one hand, um, an allegedly obscurantist, sometimes is obscurantist, religious practice, as in sort of fundamental Islam, for example, and on the other hand, progress being represented by secularists, etc., with nowhere in between. And of course, that's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous as a proposition, but it in implicit is there in a lot of writing on the modern age, a lot of commentary on the modern age, and I'm afraid to say it's present in a lot of historical work as well. Unfortunately, that is the case. Um, let me ask you, Professor, I hope you don't take it amiss. I noticed that you did not mention two of the more famous uh, uh, publications in the early 18th century. One is the Tatler, the, other, the second one is the Spectator. Why was that? Well, I just simply didn't want to repeat what I'd covered in my two earlier books on newspapers. I, you know, it, it's just not fair on the reader if they pick up a new book, hopefully even buy it, but at least devote the time to it and find that one's repeating what one's already said. So what I wanted to do was not to, um, you know, not to focus on stuff that I felt I'd covered um, not just adequately. It's rather that you know you, you don't lose but lose by looking back at something you wrote. I mean, the first press book I think is 1986 or 87, 87 in fact. You don't lose by going back at it. But the fact is, if you've got nothing new to say, then people can look at the original book. I mean, the um, it's only when you've really got something new to say. And indeed, again, we're on a new book channel. Uh, let me make the point, and I know Charles, you think the same here. All too many academics are simply repeating themselves or writing footnotes on what they've already said and done, or they are presenting. I mean, how many books do you read which say on the blurb, this is the, an original account and it is definitive? And you open the book and you, pay, you turn page after page and you have this wearying sense that yet again, somebody has rehashed um, stuff which either they have done already or somebody else has done already. So let's start. I put on the front of my book the last issue of the News of the World, which was a sort of very major British tabloid. 
Um, and the point I was making is from the present day, um, is it the case and in, in Britain, as indeed in the United States, and indeed, I have to tell you the same thing can be found across continental Europe, you will find newspaper circulation falling and people asking, does the press have a future? In fact, if you're you know, bored and got nothing else to write as an op-ed piece, you can always write a piece for some or other newspaper saying, has the press got a future? Now, there are real issues here. And what I was trying to address was, is it the case that the great sage of the press of the you know very large scale mass circulation um, uh, copies Britain obviously the the Daily Mail was the first one to sell over a million copies is that the case that something we should regard as a earth state and perfect state should we regard that as exceptional should we take the view that in many senses we're going back to the 16th 17th 18th century patterns of news dissemination in which news essentially is disseminated through networks of gossip uh, these days the gossip may be on social media in the 18th century it was a more face-to-face -face society or using letters as gossip and with print or the modern equivalents of print being part of that, but not necessarily dominating it. Um, and then linked to that, as I referred to you earlier, as I, sorry, I mentioned to you earlier, um, it, what should we be assuming news is? Um, and again, that is sort of something where if you're looking at it from the present day, it is fascinating. Um, the, um, the variety and diversity of news at the moment um, you know, whether it's, for example, doing a daily crossword or, you know, sort of looking at the weather forecast is provided now by an enormous number of news outlets. So is it the case that there is a crisis of news or is it the case that newspapers as companies, whether they are making their money through printed versions or whether they're making their money through Internet versions, whichever it is, um, and one shouldn't necessarily privilege one over the other, they are finding it harder to derive an income from a world in which there is an expectation of um, essentially free access. And that, again, is interesting. So I was trying to look at the history from the present day. Now, you can obviously criticize that. There is a danger, and I'm well aware of this, I'm there's a danger of ahistoricism, of looking backwards and using modern classifications. Well, that's true. I mean, I have to say it's true, pretty well all writing, but nevertheless, it's something one has to be well aware of. And there is also the question that, uh, and the issue that if you write from a moment in time, you are more likely to uh, risk failing to understand a trend that might, might amount, be about to be interrupted. In other words, uh, we shouldn't assume time changes in a linear fashion. There are often paradigm shifts which are very you know, very start stop or indeed taking us in different directions. And, you know, if you were if you were writing about the military in the 1990s, it was the revolution in military affairs. If you were writing about it in the late 2000s, it was the problems of counterinsurgency warfare in Afghanistan and Iraq. If you're writing about it now, people tend to be more concerned about the possibility of a high specification, high tech confrontation between the United States and China. None of those were wrong, but obviously those do not fall a linear pattern of continuity. Correct. So uh, I don't want to get off on the, a topic which is extraneous to the book, but uh, in essence, you are an adherent in a fashion of uh, Cunian idea of um, uh, theories of knowledge and how uh, particular theories supplement or um, um, eventually take um, precedence over others. I certainly think it's very interesting. I did that book on information systems. You may know Yale published it a few years ago, uh, Pursuit of Knowledge. And I'm trying, I tried in that. And in fact, there was a little bit of discussion in newspapers there. They're not the most important information systems, but information systems do not develop in linear fashion. And that's something we're very much seeing at the present moment. And um, what I would say, though, is that is that the interplay between technological changes and possibilities and their impact on profitability and social requirements is very, very significant. So you may have a social change of great scale that doesn't that affects the way that people interact, but does not necessarily affect the profitability of information systems. So the classic example of that at the moment is the enormous 
degree to which people are migrating into cities and the world is urbanizing. Now, that is a very major change in social pattern. It means that people have the potential to interact with each other face to face more so than ever before. Whether they do or not is another question, but the pavement is a very different space for most people than a countryside path. But it also doesn't it doesn't inherently produce the profitability or non-profitability of newspapers, radio, Internet or whatever. So that you can have independent variables and their interaction is in no way fixed. Uh, you mentioned before uh, Wilkes' uh, periodical, The North Britain. How important was North Britain in terms of uh, British uh, press culture and public culture, for that matter, in the 1760s? And was it influencing opi that opinion or reflecting it? Again, an excellent question. I mean, the relationship between anything and whether it's influenced causal consequence is always difficult. As far as the North Britain is concerned, it, it feeds from and contributes a sense that George III is operating in an inappropriate fashion. No two ways about that. How far is that a general view is, of course, a different question. I mean, George III's ministers win the 1770, 1774, 1780 and 1784-90 elections straight out. So those are the only elections in that period. And they win them straight out. I mean, any modern government would be <laughs> British or American would be awed by that. And, you know, accounts, for example, of George III's visit to Portsmouth and how the, you know, again, this biography by me on George III's and it provides accounts of George III sort of riding back through Surrey and sort of these vast crowds that come to applaud him. And exactly the same in 1788, his tour of places like, um, like to Longleat, for example, in the West Country. So I think one of the problems that Wilkes had, and indeed it was a problem, an analogous problem in the United States or what was to become the United States, is there are important radical elements that they find it genuinely difficult. I mean, in the in the case of the 13 colonies, not only are there many loyalists, there are also many people who just wish to sit on their hands. They don't think it's that important to fight about. A lot of people are less fascinated by politics than, you know, people tend to think. Um, so I, I think that the, the North Britain provides an issue. The mistake the government makes, I'll be quite clear about this, is that they reacted. I mean, in the, you know, the always when you hear somebody being a, um, you know, making critical remarks, the best thing possible is just to ignore them and treat them with contempt. Um, and I think the, the problem, otherwise you're letting them get inside your head. And, you know, there are nasty and malicious people out there. I mean, in my profession, it's people that use the anonymity of, uh, of reviewing processes to, you know, to essentially discharge their bile. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot of uh, you've got a lot. of The best thing is just to ignore it. And I think if the George III government had ignored Wilkes, I mean, look at what happens at Wilkes. I actually gave a lecture at Wilkes in the Guildhall in London last year. Wilkes ends up as a conservative establishment figure in London politics. I mean, you know, given time, I mean, he would have taken the bribe of, you know, what he, he was essentially interested, obsessed on vanity, sex and money. Uh, that, that didn't inherently necessarily make him a radical figure. I mean, you've had many other radicals. You know, it's, it's no accident. If you go through lots of radicals, that will be part of the equation. Um, and the question is, just let them get on with their sort of, you know, vanity, sex and and uh, and and money and whatever. And then most of them will end up as conservatives trying to minimize their tax burden and complaining about the next generation. I, I can tell you, you can see all too many people about, I mean, I'm into my mid-60s. I can see many people like that who hilariously enough consider themselves radicals and, you know, will make all sorts of rude remarks about the conservatives, etc., etc. But the practicality of them is they're as conservative as anything. Now, in the case of Wilkes, he actually turned into a conservative. He was actually quite happy to be portrayed as a conservative by the end. So I think the government would have been better off just letting him be actually just as with america they'd have been just much better off you know if the people in boston want to have a demonstration if they want to make a fuss if they want to throw some tea in the harbor just let them 
because if you act, what you do is you focus dissent and you focus action and you give the radicals something to go on. If you don't act, they'll start hitting each other over the head soon. And that's probably much better because, you know, the... Uh, <laughs> I mean, who are the people that spend most of their time killing socialists? Communists. I mean, you know, the, the, the extent to which you have to spend your time getting angry with radicals, I think, has been greatly exaggerated. Understood. And uh, perhaps you've just uh, answered my next question, which was, in a more um, seemingly dangerous atmosphere, of the 1790s, why didn't Pitt the Younger employ more coercive means of uh, press control? Oh, well, I think, again, that's an excellent question. And it's worth bearing in mind that Britain, like America during World War II, but not America, not Britain during World War II, Britain in the 1790s went on holding general elections. Opposition figures could decry the government. Governments fell. Pitt, uh, the uh, younger, for example, in 1801, Portland in 1809. Um, and, 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 you know, it was a freer society. Now, what you've got, as you know, a standard part of the, uh, of the sort of left-wing mythos about British politics in the 1790s is that there was a white terror. I mean, this is ridiculous. These people have absolutely no idea what a terror is. And in fact, ironically, if you go to France, uh, Hugh Goff did a book some years ago on the press under the French Revolution in which he reckoned that about a sixth of the journalists got guillotined. Well, you know, you've got no comparison in Britain. One or two people have to leave the country. That's it. One or two newspapers get turned down, told down. That's it. For a country at war, that's not bad. I mean, remember, if you look at the two world wars, Britain passed Dora, the Defence of the Realm Act, and actually had much more control over the press um, in both World War I and World War II than it ever did in the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. But somehow that point seems to have you know, passed people by when they wish to criticise the 1790s. Can you explain um, how exactly um, the Times of London ended up having a subscription which was five times higher in circa 1850 than its uh, three largest rivals? Yes, I think that's really very interesting. I mean, you know, it, as you know, on you know, the 29th of November 1814, it moved to uh, steam production, steam-powered flatbed press, and it was the first newspaper to do so. Um, and obviously, the technological side is important. It had already got the largest sale by 1801, so it had a circulation base, but that was fewer than 3,000 copies daily. What, in, what they're able to do with the new system is to move to producing 1,000 copies an hour. So, and you know, after the first uh, the first movement, they then go on to move different types. You know, in, in 1828, it's a different kind of uh, press, the Applegarth Press, and that enables them to produce 4,200 copies an hour. And then by 1848, they're up to a rotary printing press, and that's 8,000. So what they're doing is they've got a base. But what they're doing is they're completely changing the production technology and therefore the pricing possibilities. And within that context, you've got a sort of, from their point of view, a benign capitalistic model. Um, you improve the production. The cost base is relatively modest. You can then spend your money on producing the best news coverage, by which I mean this is an age in which people are developing to having specialized newspaper correspondence. You can move out in that direction. And the Times becomes a newspaper of authority. And it remains pretty successful till the mid-19th century. Then in the mid-19th century, taxation coming off newspapers, you're getting the development of less expensive newspapers catering for a more demotic market, a more popular market. And the Times is stuck because it still sees itself as the newspaper of record, the newspaper that is going to, as it were, be the authoritative newspaper. And quite frankly, that's not what people want. I mean, they want uh, very different stuff. They want, for example, crime and sport and sensation. And that is, you know, they're given that by different news newspapers. And the Times begins its journey towards not obsolescence. It's still read by 
you know, the uh, important uh, political circles, but it begins its journey towards becoming less consequential. I think that's a point. And there's another thing. I mean, you referred to, I think, quite reasonably at the outset, Koss, and he's obviously was interested in the political differentiation of the press. The Times has a political stance, but by presenting itself as the journal of record, it makes it much harder by the late 19th century to stand out from other newspapers, which are very much more explicitly identified um, as sort of, you know, um, as either liberal um, or conservative. And eventually, of course, that's followed by socialist newspapers. So Northcote with the Daily Mail is not just a popular newspaper. Northcote is also providing a kind of um, pro-empire newspaper, a conservative newspaper, which the Times simply uh, cannot match. I mean, the Daily Mail on its first day, so nobody had the faintest idea what it was going to be, sold 397,000 copies. I mean, this just made other newspapers appear completely and utterly irrelevant for a while. Now, they, they obviously fought back, but the Times was not able to fight back. Why do you characterize, characterize the period from 1860 to 1922 as the, quote, heyday, unquote, of the English press? Um, that's because I, I, I decided to try and argue that the end of the taxes of knowledge begins that. So the newspapers are essentially not operating in an environment in which they're paying no special taxation. They're paying the same tax any other business would, but no special taxation. And at the end of the period, you've got a new technology coming through in the shape of radio. Now, as you know, radio initially did not... Uh, really hit the press. Um, but nevertheless, what it showed was that there was going to be change. And I think it's interesting to therefore, from 1923 onwards, think in terms of a more de diverse um, information world and what that might mean. Uh, I, you know, I think that that was, that was clear. In fact, in practical terms, in the 1930s, uh, newspapers were much more under challenge from economic uh, difficulties, the Great Depression, because what that really hit was their advertising revenue. We haven't talked about advertising yet, but advertising was a key source of revenue, and that's one of the reasons also newspapers are in such difficulties today. And then in the 1940s, they were hit by uh, the war. They were hit by rationing, which particularly affected the availability of newsprint. They were hit after the war by the disastrous nature of um, Labour's attempt to run a sort of corporatist state. And what that made, it was very difficult to uh, spend money on buying adequate newsprint and indeed on buying uh, up-to-date uh, printing equipment. Um, you needed to go and get the Treasury to sign off if you wanted to spend even a relatively modest sum of money buying a machine from America. And in many senses, you know, the press really doesn't uh, get back up again until um, in the 1950s, you've got the end of rationing, you've got the rise of a new consumerism under the Conservative administrations from 1951 to 64, which means you've got a higher advertising revenue. Um, so that changes things. But, of course, by the end of that period, you're starting to get the challenge of uh, television. Now, again, the newspapers don't sit there and do nothing um, in, in response to the challenge of, uh, of um, television. One of the great changes was that they um, uh, introduced colour supplements. They go for colour. They go for much more photography. Uh, a newspaper by 1970 looks different to a newspaper by in 1955. And you have existing titles that are transformed. I mean, The Times is one example. But if you're really interested, it's The Rise of the Sun is very important as a popular newspaper, which um, very much tries to respond to what it sees as a, a different Britain. Um, and I would say that the press is still got a lot of drive in it um, in in that period. It is hit very hard in the 70s by um, trade unions, by um, the unwillingness of the Labour governments to do very much about the trade unions. Um, they really cause amazing problems. And of course, specific titles either go under or fail. And there's a lot of 
problems. And I mean, in the 80s, it leads with the um, Mr. Murdoch to a, a sort of confrontational position between uh, one of the leading newspaper groups and sort of far left wing trade unions. And I think that's quite important. There is a level of politicization there that is in some respects more acute in terms of the actual workings of the press than what one had seen in the age of the, let's say, Lloyd George in the late 19-teens, early 20s, where people had spent money in order to buy newspapers to, or hope to buy newspapers to support particular political affiliations. So the newspapers still, it's not, they're not in their heyday in the, from the 30s onwards. They've still got life in them. But I think after the 80s, they are in increasing difficulties, I think. And, you know, in, in some respects, that's to do with new technology. And I try to discuss that in the book. And, you know, others will no doubt correct me. But I try and, you know, underline what is what goes wrong and why, um, you know, initiatives that have been tried just fail. But what I would say is already before that, the extent to which profitability was under challenge in the 70s and 80s, the extent to which there was almost a reflex pressure on the left towards regulation. You know, the left moved away from, you were referring to Wilkes, they moved away from thinking of newspapers as essentially a good way of, of um, you know, portraying and advancing freedom. And instead, they came to sort of demonize them. Um, and I think that that's, that's interesting. That's instructive. So you've got political changes and cultural changes. But then, of course, you've got the same process occurring in a different context in the United States. Um, I mean, Mr. Buffett in February 2018 told CNBC that he thought only two newspapers, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, had an assured uh, future. And, and that was, he argued, because of their proven Internet model that people would uh, pay for. Uh, by that May, May 2018, he was willing to add the Washington Post, but no others. So if you think about it, not only is Mr. Buffett um, himself somebody who uh, ha who owns newspapers and has always had an interest in them uh, and an affinity with the newspaper industry, but he's essentially suggesting that he thinks that much of the American newspaper industry will collapse. And, you know, there it's been argued that maybe the same thing will happen in Britain. And that, I, I, I feel and fear, is of consequence in the public culture we're in. Um, I mean, there's a real problem in Britain that we have a, not a monopoly news provider, but more than two thirds of the population get their news from the BBC. And there are good items on the BBC. But there's also a sort of a, a very curious view of what of, of what is an, uh, an adequate and appropriate range of debate. Actually, it wasn't in the mid 60s that the Times of London finally assumed a, quote, modern, unquote, looking um uh, front page? It was indeed, yes. They stopped putting advertisements on their front page. Uh, going back a little bit, um, Jeffrey Dawson, uh, the famous editor of the Times of London, uh, on his um, uh, editorializing on the subject matter of appeasement, to what extent did he reflect or influence establishment opinion on that subject? Ah, well, that's, again, a very, very, very interesting uh, piece. There's a rather good essay by Simon Green on um, Dawson All Souls and Appeasement, in which he's looking at a particular nexus there. What I would say is as follows. Uh, appeasement itself is a complex process. Uh, I mean, you know, if you wanted to be rude or facetious, you could say America was the worst appeaser power in the in the world until uh, the Japanese and Germans ended that in December 41. Um, but the um, whether you meant appeasement towards Italy, Germany or Japan, whether you decided that you thought it was sensible to fight at moment A or that the better thing would be to actually not fight, but to build up your armed forces, etc., etc. There were lots of different viewpoints. And as we know, there was a reluctance to go to war again. I mean, as we know, when Chamberlain comes back from Munich, um, uh, he is greeted with great popularity. And we also know that uh, the Dominions, particularly Canada, which had played a key role in World War One, had indicated very clearly that it didn't want to fight over Czechoslovakia in 38. So there was both 
you know, going to war in late 38 would have both divided the country and divided the empire in a way that going to war, incidentally, the following September didn't. You know, you got a few uh, fascists, you got a few uh, left wingers, uh, but you know, the vast majority of the public uh, were willing to, you know, to 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 accept war with uh, war with Germany and indeed uh, the conscription that went with it. So, in a way, I'm not sure that the Times led. Um, I mean, if you think about it, the chiefs of staff's advice to the government in 38 as to what they felt Britain could do. You can debate the rights or wrongs of it, but it's not that the chiefs of staff were sitting there reading the Times and saying, OK, the Times says this. This is what we are going to give our government the advice on. The same with Mackenzie King from, you know, from Ottawa. Mackenzie King, the uh, head of the Canadian government, isn't sort of waiting around to see what the Times has to say before sending his views in. So no, I, I think to a great extent um, there was a exaggeration of the role of the sorry exaggeration of the of what was supposedly the role of the press in that, and it became part of that rather tired um, sort of Labour attempt to argue that essentially. The British rule okay, but they were being misled by false consciousness. So in other words, they've been misled by the Daily Mail and the Zenobia letter in the 20s. They get misled by the Times and the Peasement in the 30s. I think that's ridiculous. Um, I mean, it's obviously also self-serving, given that, you know, Hitler's major ally in attacking uh, Poland is, of course, uh, the Soviet Union. But I mean, leave aside that. It's also, I think, very, very, very uh, misleading because this idea of false consciousness implies that people are incapable of having their own view on the subject. And I think, you know, a lot of people did not want to go to war. They didn't realize how awful and evil uh, Germany was, and they were very disinclined to fight another war. And, you know, it's all very well for us with the benefit of hindsight to say there had to be war. Um, but, you know, that was not so clear to people in 37 and 38. Indeed. Uh, how much influence do you assign to the financial subsidizing of uh, politicians, particularly, I suppose, in the 30s? I'm thinking specifically of uh, Lord Beaverbrook in the case of Sir Samuel Hoare and the Berry brothers in, in the case of uh, Winston Churchill. Well, I think it's certainly the case that newspaper proprietors took a role in in supporting individual politicians to a greater extent than we would now regard possibly as appropriate. But hilariously enough, I say that. And of course, the Daily Telegraph at the moment is giving one of the politicians that wants to be prime minister enormous coverage by having him as a columnist. I mean, in a way, that's paying him a significant salary. So, you know, it's, I mean, one has to be cautious. I mean, one of the things I would say is it became harder in the in the 30s and thereafter than it had been in the 19th century because newspapers increasingly were uh, publicly listed companies and had shareholders so whereas in the 19th century a lot of their finances were pretty opaque uh, they become less opaque um, in the 20th century. Now, that doesn't stop an individual owner deciding from their own money to pay somebody, but it makes it much harder for them to do something that might be regarded as illegal or inappropriate with the money from a publicly listed company. And again, the same thing is true in the United States. Um, so I'm not sure that people always distinguish. Of course, the funniest, I mean, I quote it in my book, uh, the funniest uh, account of the press is Evelyn Waugh's novel Scoop. And um, with the uh, extraordinarily powerful press lord there who's as thick as two short planks, but I mean, but who nevertheless is somebody who's in a position, Lord Copper, is in a position to uh, determine what happens to his journalists and also uh, the, 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 you know, the items in the in the news. And, uh, you know, it's quite clear that owners go on doing that. But then again, as I said, you shouldn't assume that's necessarily sort of silk hatted capitalists. I mean, if you've got a sort of um, a group of journalists who are co a collective running a newspaper, they're doing exactly the same. I mean, news uh, news is not value-free. What you decide to put in terms of the prioritization of the news is not value-free. Um, 
And you can see this even more the case if you look at some of the comment pieces, not just on news, but on non-news items, you know, people's views on what are and are not appropriate things to do in terms of, you know, holidays or, or um, um, sort of social life, et cetera, et cetera, gender relations, all the rest of it are clearly not value free. Um, I mean, you'll, you'll remember, I don't know, in, in Scoop, which comes out in, in 1938, um, the, the newspaper in question, there are the two of them, they're the rivals. One is the Daily Beast and the other one is the Brute. And, um, and at the outset, the Brute has beaten the Beast in every edition on the Zoo Mercy slaying story. And, and you know, the Beast has over two million registered readers. Now, what... Um, Evelyn War is making fun of is the uh, Daily Express and the uh, Daily Mail. And War himself had reported on the Abyssinian War, the Ethiopian War for the Daily Mail in 1935. So that's three years before Scoop came out. Um, well, I think you could probably find farcical aspects today. I mean, the farcical, uh, you know, I mean, look, you and I could write a hilarious piece about nonsense about about how newspapers need to decolonize you know because that obviously is part and parcel of the sort of the you know the ruling drivel of the present day so i'm sure if you wanted to you and i could produce some interesting article alleging that the new york times or the guardian has done some made some money in the past from some terrible thing or other and that they really you know you know 100 years ago they really ought to be spending their time apologizing and you know etc and that they're content is wrong because it's inappropriate in how it treats and then whatever you want to do. And you and I know that would be nonsense. But funnily enough, we seem to think it's funny when we look at um, Evelyn War. We don't realize the same thing in its own way still exists today and is also ridiculous, uh, but we don't sort of laugh at ourselves enough. How typical was the organized or perhaps semi-organized press silence dealing with the uh... Uh, King Edward VIII's relationship with the then Mrs. Simpson and Churchill's stroke in 1953? I think in those days that was much more common, uh, that the degree of scrutiny of individuals' personal life is much less than it would be today. So you could go on. I mean, Macmillan, who was prime minister from 1957 to 1963, uh, his wife uh, was having a sort of an affair um, during that period of time. And, you know, everybody in the charmed circles of life knew about it. Same with Harold Wilson, for that matter. Um, but, you know, nobody chose to talk about it. So um, I think I think now, although one says that, I mean, I, you know, I'm not quite sure how safe one could be on your uh, on your uh, your channel. But I mean, Private Eye has had some very interesting stories about the private life of a recent British prime minister. And that li those stories have not gone, uh, not as far as I'm aware, been published in the newspapers. So maybe we're still in the same position. Indeed, uh, perhaps we are. Uh, what do you attribute? the tendency of British English press lords to come from predominantly self-made in either provincial uh, British background or from overseas background. I'm thinking in particular, of course, of the Harmsworth brothers, Ireland, um, the Berry brothers from Wales, Bracken uh, from Ireland, um, Conrad Black, uh, Thompson, and of course Beaverbrook from Canada, and famously, Murdoch from Australia. Murdoch, of course, Bob, of all the ones I just named, the only one who was not uh, self-made. Yes. I mean, what I think is interesting is that um, London, I mean, because we're overwhelmingly talking about London, although some of these had very major, like Thompson and Berry, had provincial holdings as well. But London was very much the world city particularly the Anglophone world. I mean, obviously, New York took it took over that role. But of course, it's in the case of America, they've often made it much harder for foreigners to invest. But London was very much the the world city. And as a result of that, it was the folk that people wouldn't necessarily have seen themselves as foreigners. I think that's an important point. I mean, you know, I, Conrad Black is no relation of mine, and I've never met him. But, you know, uh, I've, I don't get the impression he saw himself as a foreigner in London any more than he did in Toronto. Um, so I think that that element is worth thinking about. Um, and 
obviously these people also saw that a lot about British society, British economy was stodgy and that there were opportunities for uh, moving it in a different direction. And, you know, in a way, you've got an analogue there with successive financial changes, including you know, the, uh, the big changes of the Thatcher years, but there were changes before that in terms of capitalisation of companies and share, big stock markets from the late 19th century. And a lot of the players on that were, were foreign. Um, so I think that... Um, in a way, the openness of aspects of British society. I mean, there's plenty of British society which is much less open. I would, you know, uh, without in any way being critical, one could say you don't get that same degree of openness, for example, in the army or the church. Um, and I would also say there's a fair amount of rigidity, uh, certainly towards uh, freedom of thought in a lot of large sections of the academic life. But I would say that... Um, that business has traditionally been open. I mean, you mentioned foreigners in a classic feature that's worth bearing in mind from the late 19th century onwards also is that of all the major European centers, in fact, maybe of all the major global centers, it was the one that was most open to Jews. And um, you get people from, you know, Jewish background from Eastern Europe rising a long way. So one of the press lords you didn't mention was Robert Maxwell in that context. And I think it's fair to say that would have been harder in many other many other centers of the world. Yes, that is the case. Um, how important to the success of New Labour was uh, Tony Blair's squaring, as it were, of Rupert Murdoch before 1997? I think it was instructive, but um, Blair won the 97 election the same way Corbyn might win. His actual vote was not much, was not significantly greater than Labour had won in the previous election. The difference was the Conservative vote fell. It's not the Conservatives went and voted Labour. What happened is the aggregate vote, the total vote in 97, was lower than in 92. So the Conservatives, some of them voted Conservatives, some of them voted for the referendum party, the kind of precursor of Mr. Farage's current party, and some of them just didn't vote. And that produced what appeared to be a Labour landslide. It certainly was in terms of the seats, but it wasn't uh, to the same degree in terms of cephalological trends. And again, you've got the same situation here. You would be hard-pressed to know if you were reading the newspapers, listening to people talking, whether they're conservatives or anti-conservatives, you'd be hard-pressed to know that the prime minister who won an election with the second largest number of votes for their party was actually Theresa May in the 2017 general election. The, the one who won it the ha highest was um, uh, John Major in 1992. So both of those figures got more people than voted for them than for voted for Blair or Brown or Cameron or for that matter Thatcher. Um, and uh, but you know obviously a lot of myths grew up and it was important to those people who liked talking about newspapers to argue that newspapers were significant. But one of the things I think you've got to always distinguish, I argued this years ago, is newspapers are a message, not a, sorry, are a medium, not a message. So you take The Sun. The Sun famously in 1992 had a cartoon of Mr. Kinnock, the then Labour leader, inside a light bulb saying, you know, with the last person in England to, you know, turn the light off. In other words, Kinnock win wins, the country's finished. Well, it subsequently transpired that many of these sons' readers, and, you know, they might well be reading the newspaper because they were interested in football or interested in television news or rather scantily dressed uh, ladies in photographs, um, that the time, the, these, many of these sons' readers thought it was a Labour periodical. Um, which you would have had to have been very hard-pressed if you read the editorials. But then lots of people read newspapers and don't read the editorials. How do you see the English-British press 10 years from now? Oh, how do I see the English-British press 10 years from now? I see it in real difficulties. I mean, there have been suggestions there won't be very many newspapers going. The young aren't tending to read newspapers. And what that then does is jeopardizes the advertising revenue, which is absolutely crucial to their profitability. Uh, the extent to which they can actually persuade people to pay 
to read on them online is unclear. A lot obviously depends on macroeconomics. A lot depends upon the real cost of borrowing, whether interest rates go up. A lot that depends upon the regulatory environment if Labour comes in, which is anticipated, because the regulatory environment will probably be much less attractive to uh, to free markets and also probably to free newspaper to, to newspapers having free opinion. Um, so no, I would not be optimistic. I, 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 which I think is a great pity. I think a, a free press is absolutely crucial to a democratic society. I think that. Um, as so often, and I would say exactly the same about democracy, about a free press, about capitalism and about social civility, all of them are more fragile than people appreciate. So that if you spend your time uh, over-regulating them or putting them in difficulties, then I'm afraid to say they may well um, you know, be seriously uh, weakened or even fatally weakened. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Um, what I would like people to do is actually enjoy it. I think anything written about newspapers is fascinating, and I've tried to cover things like crime or the attitudes to, to women and all sorts of things. So the press is fascinating. The press is a mirror on society. Obviously, it's a mirror with some of the pieces missing, but it is a mirror on society. And I would also like them to get some sense of the importance of a free expression of opinion. I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.